Well, good morning. Today we are continuing in a series that we're calling Conversations because our words, our words have power. Your words have power to shape your life, to shape the people around you. And today we're going to talk about a subject that's not exactly fun, but uh, it's absolutely necessary. It is a conversation that you and I should have every single day of our life, and it will, it will definitely shape who we are, our character, and our sense of well-being. And this is the confession that we have with God about the sin in our life, sin that we have committed towards other people, sins that we have had committed against us. In fact, when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, uh, he said this, uh, pray to God every day for your daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. So that tells us how frequently he's expecting us to pray. And then the second point under that is, forgive us of our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. So you know what that's about? That's about confession and forgiveness. And if every single day you and I would confess and forgive, it would absolutely change our sense of well-being, our mental uh, state, our emotional state, uh, our our sense of how much hope we have for the future. So important. So I want to just talk to you about that. First of all, uh, I want to just say that um, this is not an easy subject. It's hard to confess. I want to be right all the time. Do you want to be right all the time? It is painful to have to say, I'm sorry. I did the wrong thing. Um, But we need to talk about this. These are words that have power. The first thing that we want to look at is this, is that we have to admit that we have a problem. We have, you know what the problem is? We live in a fallen world where things don't go the way they're supposed to go. We live in a fallen world where people sin against us and we sin against other people. I mean, we, we have to deal with sin all the time in our life. But sin is so common, it becomes kind of ubiquitous. You don't even notice it because it's par for the course. It's what everybody does. And yet in the Bible, Jesus has a lot to say about sin. Have you ever heard the statement, what you don't know won't hurt you? Have you you ever heard that? Okay, well, sometimes that's true, and sometimes that's not. Uh, I don't know if anybody here likes to eat bugs. There are a lot of places in the world that you can actually buy bugs in the marketplace. I've been there. Didn't buy any. Uh, But um, John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, discusses this topic, the topic of bugs in our food, And he goes on to say that we actually in this country have a government agency that is in charge of making sure that the food that we eat is clean and without impurities. Interestingly enough, that's called the Food and Drug Administration, and they establish guidelines of purity for everything that gets put on the shelf or gets sold in a grocery store. They have standards. Aren't you glad? Let me tell you some of the standards they have. Anybody here ever eat apple butter? Raise your hand. You like apple butter? You know what? You can rest assured because of the Food and Drug Administration that that apple butter is good for you to eat because their standard is this. 
If the mold count is 12% or more, if it averages four rodent hairs per 100 grams or more, if it averages five or more whole insects per 100 grams, the FDA will ruthlessly pull that apple butter off the shelf. In the meantime, enjoy the 12% mold, the four rodent hairs, and who knows how many bugs. You know, I actually look up, I looked up because this specifically says that the, the, the whole insects are not to include mites, aphids, or scale insects. So I looked up what an aphid is. You know what an aphid is? You should look it up, Google it. It is the cutest little jumping spider you've ever seen. It's in your food. Coffee beans. Coffee beans will get withdrawn from the market if an average of 10% or more are insect infested or if there is uh, more than one live insects per container. Apparently, two live insects are too many, but one is acceptable. Mushrooms. Mushrooms, they, they can be sold, uh, they can't be sold if there's an average of 20 or more maggots per, of any size. I mean, they're strict on maggots. It's big or small. <laughs> if there are, are more than 20 maggots of any size per 15 grams of dried mushrooms, that ain't gonna go out on the shelf. You can, be, you can rest assured. Fig paste, think fig newtons. If there are more than 13 insect heads per 100 grams of fig paste in each of two or more subsamples, the FDA ruthlessly tosses the whole bunch. Apparently, other insect body parts are acceptable, but not the heads. We don't like to see those heads staring back at us. How about hot dogs? Yeah, let's not even go there. I mean, the truth is, you're eating gross stuff, but it won't kill you. What you don't know won't kill you. Don't look too closely. There are some things, however, that will kill you. For instance, did you know that lead poisoning can kill you? I think we've become quite aware of that since the 70s. But lead, amazingly enough, was this amazing metal that was discovered in Rome that was pliable and easy to mold into cups, pipes, and many different things. And so the use of lead in Rome became very, very popular. In fact, 80,000 tons of lead per year. Lead was used to make utensils, cosmetics, medicines, wines, even the food of the upper class used lead in it. Extremely popular at the time was the method of sweetening and preserving food and wine using lead acetate. Uh, occasionally, lead acetate or lead sugar was sprinkled directly onto the food. More often, grape concentrate was boiled down in lead pots producing a syrup called sapa, which was then added to the wine. Later, examination of the storage vessels used to store the wine, they discovered that they, they were made out of lead. 
And because it was the elite that could afford all of these beautiful and wonderful things, when they exhumed skeletons of ancient Romans and tested the lead content in their bones, it was the higher class that had a higher concentration of lead, and the slaves, they, they dodged a bullet. You know why? Because they were too poor to be able to uh, uh, buy the fancy stuff. They had to be content with wood plates, cups, and spoons. With so much lead in the upper class, it has been suggested that the madness of the Roman emperors could be blamed on lead poisoning. I mean, many in the upper class turned to adoption because they were unable to conceive. Infertility, by the way, is a notable symptom of lead poisoning. Lead poisoning is also associated with gout and kidney disease, as well as depression, irritability, mood disorder, and forgetfulness, which, imp which emperors such as Claudius, Nero, and Caligula suffered from. I mean, lead poisoning is a big deal. Ironically, the poor people were less affected because they could not afford the expensive stuff. So sometimes what you don't know is actually killing you. At least that's the history of Rome. You know, there is no question that the number one problem Jesus came to address was sin. The angel at the announcement of his birth instructed that his name should be Jesus. For this reason, he will save his people from their sin. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus and introduced him, this is how he was introduced. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, even though sin is everywhere and you and I are guilty all the time, uh, and, it, you know, we... we, we can kind of excuse our sin. Well, everybody's doing it. Nobody's perfect. You know what Jesus had to say about sin? Jesus had to say this. He said, sin is deadly. The reason I'm here is to get rid of sin, to, 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 to pay for your sin, to deliver you from sin. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he gets all exercised about sin, and it seems to be a little bit over the top when he says this. Matthew 5, 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for, for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. You know what Jesus had to say? He said, I can't tell you strongly enough how important it is for you to pay attention to the sin in your life. You got to deal with the sin in your life. It is not innocuous. Yes, it's common. Yes, everybody's struggling, but this is something that you need to deal with. John chapter 10, verses 9 to 10, Jesus says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. If the, the, the thief comes, not to, uh, not, the thief does not come except to steal, 
and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Why did Jesus lay down his life on a cross? He laid down his life on a cross to pay for the sin of the world, to break the power of sin that you and I are under. It is a big deal. You and I have got to learn how to pay attention to and deal with the sin in and around us all the time. How do you do that? Confession. Confess to God. That's point number two. And number three, confess to other people. Because this is a big deal. 1 John 1, 8 to 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin's not a big deal. No, no, no. The truth isn't in you if that's how you're thinking about your life. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You should memorize that verse. 1 John 1, 9. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. For you to sit here today, for me to stand here today and say, well, sin's not a big deal, then I'm, I'm, just, I'm just frankly a liar and the truth is not in me. And I'm not paying attention to what's going on around me and in me. Sin is an issue that we all have to to deal with. And what do you do with your sin? If we confess our sin, that means we say, I did it, it's wrong, I take responsibility. If we confess our sin, what is the response of God to confess sin? He is faithful and just to forgive. Did you know that God is predisposed today to forgive you of whatever that sin is you're thinking of right now? Do you know the heart of God is for you to be forgiven? Do you know the heart of God is for you to be forgiven and to be cleansed from all unrighteousness? You know what that means? That means that God is going to clean you up and put you in a, on a path of greater righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is living the right way, getting it right, doing what is right. What is the plan of God? If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. But sometimes, yeah, we pray every day and We're not too shook up about our sin. We're not too particular. Here's the problem. All of us have such a low standard of righteousness that we cut each other a lot of slack. Now, I'm not saying that we should be judgmental toward each other, but I'm just saying is sometimes we forget that the primary issue that Jesus came to solve was the power of sin in our life. And the only way we're going to solve that is confession. As Jesus taught us, forgive us of our sin as we forgive those who have sinned against us. You know what I've, I've done lately? Is I, I took that prayer and I applied that to my family. Because it's true. God, forgive Forgive me of my sin against my wife, my children, and I name them by name. Forgive me of my sins against my parents, my brother, his family, my sister, 
her family. Because God, I haven't gotten it all right in all these relationships and I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. I need to be forgiven. I need to be cleansed from unrighteousness. And I need the power to know how to walk rightly in each one of these relationships. But when we live a life like we get it all right all the time, and we don't find our way to our knees and confess to God the sins in our life, we're never going to get it right. We're going to be all stopped up and struggling. And I've done things that have made my mom and dad cry. I know what it's like to realize only too late that I was on the wrong track. I know the feeling of saying something in an insensitive way to one of my kids in my anger, only to watch gentle tears begin to drop down their cheeks and it melts my heart and makes me wish I had never said those things and acted that way. I know what it's like to try to be right so strongly that I can prove my point and walk away from an argument and I, I, I walk away all by myself, lonely, because I really didn't get closer to anybody. I just was right on my own. And I was pretty much a jerk. You know what we have to do? You need to confess your sins. I need to confess my sin. I need to do that every day. The daily confession of sin is what trains us toward righteousness because I'm paying attention. You know, when James, my youngest, was very little, he was the most adorable little boy you've ever seen. He was for me, at least. He, he was so cute. He had these little tiny round glasses and everybody loved him. And he was awesome. But you know, all kids do wrong things. Did you know that? Did anybody here have a perfect kid? If they're a week old, maybe you do. But you wait, it'll, it'll happen. And I remember that, um, you know, there, there were times when this adorable little boy had to be corrected. And I would put on my stern dad voice. Have you got one of those? Or stern mom voice. And I would correct him. And he would listen. And he would sense what's going on. And all of a sudden, this cute little face would melt into the lower lip. He had the cutest pout you ever saw. And that made it really hard to maintain the stern dad voice. And James didn't have many words back then. But we had taught him a sign for sorry. A sign to apologize. And it was a, it was a fist over his heart and he would circle it like this. It meant I'm sorry. And from this awful, sad little pout, 
his hand would come up. Don't know how much he understood of, about you know, what I was saying, but he knew something was wrong. And he would start circling his heart. And then he would lunge in into an embrace and put his head in my chest. Because do you know what he wanted more than anything? He wanted the separation of that offense to be removed. And he wanted to be close again. You know, sin separates us from God and each other. Um, it takes away our hopes and our dreams. We all need forgiveness. What are you hiding from God? What are you pretending God doesn't know about in the stuff of your life? Do you know that God wants to be close to you so much that he sent his only begotten son to a cross to pay for the sin of the world so that he could be close. What do we need to do? We need to learn how to confess words that have great power. Now all of you can't be confessing right here, right now, but why don't we borrow a little gesture from James's old playbook? Would you take your fist and put it on your heart and then just circle it? Maybe you'd want to just say, God, you know what I'm talking about right now because you don't need my words. I'm confessing to you. I'm, I'm really sorry. There are things that are wrong. And I need to be close to you again. You know, I, like, I love great scholars that come from Princeton or Calvin University, like uh, the great uh, theologian Neil Plattinga. And he talks about the importance of confession. And I want, you to, I want you to talk, I want you to listen to his very scholarly presentation. Here's what he has to say about confession. Confession of sin is like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. I don't know what day the trash truck comes to your house. But it comes every Friday to mine. And we always celebrate, oh, today, this is Thursday night. Tomorrow's trash day. I actually love watching the trash truck come by and pick up the trash. Because that trash is stinky. And often overflowing. What do you do with the trash in your life? Let's practice again. Gentle fist over heart. Forgive me, God. And if you're really talking to him right now, you know what he said? Okay. Come close. I'm going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and make you new. Lastly, 
Confession to others is also an important component of dealing with the sin in our life. James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I want you to notice that it doesn't say forgiven. But this mutual confession to one another does aid in the healing of sin. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and great power as it is working. You know, what, what we're instructed in the church to do is there are times when we feel stuck in our ruts, in our shadows, and we can't seem to get victory. So what is suggested here, actually it's an instruction Confess your sin to someone you trust. Tell them your struggle and your problem. And ask them to pray for you. You see, one of the biggest obstacles for change for us is the fact that we get stuck in our sin. And in our pride, we will not ask for help. And the Bible says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And here's the deal. If you're stuck and you need more grace, why don't you find a trusted friend and with humility, because it'll be there, tell them, you know, I I need you to pray for me because I've got a struggle in my life. I can't overcome. I remember learning this as a young man and then meeting one day to go talk to an older man and I told them that. And it was so humiliating. It was the hardest moment as I confessed. And this older man said to me, yeah, I understand what you're talking about. I've had similar struggles. You know, God's going to help you and I'm going to pray for you. Anytime anybody comes to visit me in the office, and this happens from time to time, and I'll have a man sit in front of me, and they'll, 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 they'll start out by saying, Pastor, I've never told anybody about this before, but... And when they say those words, I get so excited for them. doesn't matter what they're going to tell me. Because what I know is the humility of the moment that they have just put themselves in. I've never told anyone else this. I know that a new flood of God's grace and power is about to reshape this circumstance and conversation. And then I I pray for them. That's what we got to do. Father, we say, forgive us of our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. Sin always breaks things. And when sin is something we're dealing with, either something that we've done or something that other people have done to us, it still breaks us. It is so important that we don't ignore it, but that we follow scripture and learn to confess to God 
and then in humility sometimes get the help of others who will pray with us and for us. I heard the story of somebody who um, they were exercising and then they, they, actually, they actually had a hairline fracture in their leg and it was so painful. They went to the doctor, the doctor x-ray. says, oh, it's a hairline fracture. It's gonna take some, uh, take some time, but it's gonna heal on its own. So um, just be careful with it, you know, try to stay off of it. And this person said that that little hairline fracture was so painful to go upstairs, they were holding onto the banister. I mean, they were lifting themselves up. And, and then, then after a few days, they began to notice that their, their other leg, the foot on their other leg began to hurt too. And then the hip on the other side began to hurt. They went back to the doctor and the do- they said, doctor, I mean, this still hurts a little bit, but now I've developed a foot that aches and a hip that, and the doctor says, oh, you know what's going on? Is you are compensating for the break and putting more pressure on the foot and on your hip and that's what's th- that, what the problem is. Here, here is the principle in this story. Anytime sin breaks something, it has to be compensated for. So you need to go to God and you need to say to him, forgive me. God, this person makes me mad. What they did to me hurts so bad. Have you ever been hurt by somebody that you can wake up every single morning and be mad at them all over again? Am I the only one in the room like that? And you know what God's instruction is to all of us? You can't go back and make it not ever happen. It's there. So what do we do? Could we get revenge? No. That's not what scripture says. We forgive. I think a lot of people get confused that they think that genuine forgiveness is only when you really feel an emotion to forgive. I disagree with that. I think forgiveness is the choice. I choose to forgive you while I'm still mad. And I go to God and I say, God, I forgive them. And now I'm going to ask you to bless them. Whoa. And the next morning you're going to get up and you'll be mad again. And you, by a choice of, to choose obedience, you forgive again. And you pray for their blessing again. If you're waiting for people to come back and apologize to you, you're going to be a sick person all of your life, I'm just going to say. But if you choose the path of Jesus and you learn to ask forgiveness and to forgive, because that's what you have been instructed to do, your emotions will catch up. Because the power of the Holy Spirit will begin at work in you and give you the ability to not be so wounded and even to forgive. There's a a dramatic play written by Michael Christopher called The Black Angel, uh, a former Nazi general. It was about a former Nazi general whose name was Engel, who, who had been convicted in the Nuremberg trials for having committed war crimes And he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. He had literally killed hundreds of people. He was in the command. He told his soldiers to kill them. 
And so he spent 30 years in jail. And he was hoping that during those 30 years, he could kind of get free. He got out, and he was settled in a little town in France. He began building a cabin in the mountains for himself and his wife. His past, with its horrendous guilt, was now forever behind him, paid for, he believed, by three decades in jail. Now he could try to forget it all. He had earned the right to make a new beginning, he thought. But then there was this French journalist by the, by the name of Mor- Moria. Moria could not forget. His family had been massacred at the start of the war in the village that Engel's army had overrun. Everybody in the village had been shot dead. No, Moria could not forget. For 30 years, he planned revenge. If the Nuremberg court could not sentence Engel to death, Moria would carry out his own sentence. Now, after 30 years, the time had come. Moria had gone into a little village, and this guy, who was the journalist, stoked the hatred and the fear in the minds of the village radicals, and he created sort of a crazed mob. And they planned a day of revenge where they were going to go and kill Engel and his wife and burn down the cabin. But Moria decided to go and visit Engel the day before this. He had unanswered questions that he had to get answered, and so he spent the afternoon, the night of the vengeance, and Moria identified himself, and this shocked Engel. But the Inquisition began. All afternoon, the Inquisition went on as Moria probed into the story, and as Moria got inside the soul of Engel, Moria's own soul began to change. Revenge began to taste sour in his mouth. And he changed his mind. And he said to the former Nazi general, they're going to come to you, come to you tonight. They're surely going to kill you. Come with me. I will save your life. I can get you out of here alive. The general waited for a long minute before he answered, and he said to the French journalist, I will go with you on one condition. Moria said, what is that condition? that you forgive me. No, 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 save you I will, but forgive you I cannot. Never, never, never. And that night the villagers came as a mob and they shot them, both Engel and his wife, and burned down his cabin. And the point of the writer is this, that the thing the general wanted even more badly than life itself was forgiveness. If you will forgive the people in your life who have hurt you, I know this is messy. I'm not recommending you go back into a dangerous situation or even have a face-to-face conversation depending on the circumstances because life is complicated. It's not one size fits all, I promise. But if you could begin by forgiving and having a conversation with God about it, and if you could ever actually go and tell that person, you hurt me deeply, but I forgive you. You could let them out of jail. You could change their life. 
forgiveness. It's so important. It actually is where our relationship with uh, God begins. When we come to him and we say to him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus, come into my life. I believe you went to a cross and paid for my sin. I need that forgiveness. Only you can give it. I receive you as my Savior. If you've not done that, maybe you could do that today. And if there's someone you need to forgive, the truth is, when you refuse to forgive, you actually put yourself in prison with them. And the only way to be free is to forgive regardless of what they do. Words have power. This is a conversation that would change your life. Will you bow your heads, please?